Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. Welcome to this week's show. Gretchen, welcome to the show. Hi there. Bill is off this week, but he'll be back next week. And I would like to welcome all of our new listeners that are listening at The Answer Seattle. We are so happy to be back in the Seattle market. So this is really, really cool. And as the show goes forward, you'll find out that we base our programming on what you want. So userfriendly.show is our website. Jump on there anytime. Send us your questions, your comments. Do you like this? Do you not like it? We want to hear from you. Userfriendly.show. We'd give our social media, but the social media networks keep changing their names. So it's just a little <laughs> easier to go to our website. So normally we would start out with news. And today we're actually going to do a Q&A. It's a little bit different setup just uh, with all that's going on in the world. This was just a better way to go in. Plus, we've had a number of questions come in. And these two things have been focused. First one being, is social media really going to start charging? In addition to changing their name, somebody's got to pay for that rebranding. <laughs> so this is what's going on with that. Uh, Twitter or X or whatever it is today is talking about, uh, and they were actually testing this in a market, charging a dollar per year for access to their system. I don't know if that would be the price that it stays at, but that's where it is. Now, for a while, they've had uh, things where you can buy Twitter premium or uh, X premium. Imagine that on your credit card statement. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. This brings up a whole new quandary. Um. That means that these social medias are going to have my credit card information or whatever. And that means they have to store them securely. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, that's, actually, that's a whole nother can of worms. But yes, um, that's actually a, a good point, too, you know, because uh, it, it just. <laughs> if your account gets hacked. And what if your card is in there and they've hacked your account and somebody's selling garbage on, you know, whatever social media it is, and they start buying stuff? Wait a minute. You know now, what I mean? The one thing I will say is that both sites actually do keep credit card information, just not for everyone. So uh, Twitter X, you can go on and pay for Twitter Blue, uh, which I, I don't think buy anything. I know that, but a lot of people do. and. <laughs> And so far, it seems like they've been okay with that. At least I haven't heard about anything. And same thing on Facebook. Now, Facebook's been a little bit different. That would be more for a commercial thing where if you buy advertising or something. Um, and on right. that, I do have my credit card on file because we've used Facebook for that in the past. So I think right now, at least their history of this is okay. But, you know, it's it's kind of interesting to see where that's going. And then on the other side, Meta, which this would be Facebook and Instagram, is playing with the idea to stop ads if you want to pay the equivalent, this will be in Europe first, of $17 a month. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, <laughs> and, and, and so, okay, when I start seeing these things, I'm wondering, um, are they purposely trying to kill off this stuff? Is it is somebody somewhere in a dark room and with lots of screens and, and deciding we must get rid of social media. <laughs> My you know, understanding whatever. on the meta side <laughs> is that yeah. this is something to do with the European Union regulators mm -hmm. and um, the uh, privacy of information. You can stop ads. 
if you pay for it or you can simply just not use the ads. It's only available in Europe, at least initially. Uh, you don't have that option here in the United States or in most other countries. So, uh, you know, from that standpoint, it seems like there's a lot of stuff that is going on. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, at least from what they're claiming are the cause of these things. Now, on Twitter, uh, it seems like a dollar a year, well, per person, that would add up to a lot of money. And certainly some of the changes they've made is cut into the advertising revenue and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, it's it's hard to say. it's yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to giving a dollar to um, Twitter X, whatever the heck it is. Um, I don't want them having my my uh, money uh, yeah. information, and that's going to be uh, interesting. Thing. Now, it. now the one thing I will say on the other side of this coin is, if the accounts were paid for in some way, that would cut down on the spam and fake accounts and bots, because now all mm-hmm. of a sudden the people that are doing that would have to pay to do it. And it's akin to the same reason why at one time we didn't get all of these uh, garbage phone calls and we do now. It's because making long-distance phone calls no longer costs money. So it's the same type of idea that if you had to pay for a social media account, the spammers wouldn't do it because all of a sudden they'd have to pay to do it and it wouldn't become you know profitable for them. So you know, I don't know. We're going to have to watch this and see what's going on. I am not a huge social media person myself, but yeah. um, I use it from time to time. Would I pay $17 for a month for... Facebook and Instagram, I can tell you right now, no. Um, I don't think I'd pay for Twitter either. You know, anyway, so uh, next question that came in, is Microsoft trying to purposefully make equipment obsolete? Now, Rich, I know you had an incident with this too. Okay. Um, I have a, I guess you'd call it a legacy printer. It's a LaserJet 4 Plus. It's a workhorse. Uh, It has never let me down. And we went through the trouble to get a USB adapter for it. Does anybody who knows what kind of printer that is uh, knows that? Um, I think it has a SCSI port. I parallel think port, actually, it's, oh, it's parallel, a parallel port. port. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so that's pretty old, but it is a good machine, and I use it to help my mom out because she likes things printed, and there are a few things that I like printed, and I just don't want another printer and uh, after this latest update that went through uh the the driver is missing and it's yeah, like it just, it just went it's away just gone yeah and it's it's stopped working and so you know along these lines windows 11 has been accused of this type of a thing for a lot now i know you're still on windows 10 but you know who knows what mm-hmm. they're doing on the updates but the thing yeah. of it is this windows 11 made a lot of full computers that would normally be capable of running it, not be able to run it because of their very locked down security requirements. So you have to have a specific kind of BIOS to be able to boot up to Windows 11 and some things like that. So you end up with a lot of e-waste that's generated from these kind of decisions. And the explanation on Microsoft's side, of course, is, well, it's more secure. And it is. I can't argue that point. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, the question comes, well, you have a Renaissance era printer, or I'm sorry, uh, what would that be? A, well, a medieval? Four, medieval, practically. <laughs> Actually, a, a four plus is late 90s to early 2000s. I believe that's the era. Yeah. And uh, so the question then becomes, well, the driver just disappeared. Is that really something to do with an update? Did something else go wrong? Now, you haven't changed anything. It just went away. So that would nope. say that, well, you probably is the update. Uh, at yeah. least that's where I would start looking at it. 
And that, in, fa- in addition to the fact I did a little bit of poking around online to see if others are having this problem, and they are with that whole. So there's a there's a time or kind of a classification of printers. It's the four, four plus, the three, uh, and some other things that were out in that era that use a same set of criteria for the drivers. And the drivers might be a little bit different, but the way they work has to do back with the old days of Windows XP or thereabouts. So current configuration doesn't support that, but you were able to run it in legacy mode. Now, it seems like the way that they're fixing it is to get their hands on a period, what's called a JetTurek printer device. And it goes, there's a slot in the back of your printer that has a metal cover on it. It goes in that slot. And what these were for was putting the printer on a network. Like if you were in an office, it would plug into Ethernet. It doesn't support wireless, but it does support hardline Ethernet. So you'd plug it into a, a hub. And it seems like what's really happened is the driver's gone away for the parallel port, even though you're using a USB adapter. At some point, it does have to talk to the parallel port because that's what it is. Yeah. So very likely, if we get a Jet Direct card for you that's of that era, uh, which oh, is going to be interesting to find. I, I mean, this is going to be like me going to the garage and digging through boxes. I probably have one somewhere. Okay. Uh, so have a look. But the bottom line of it is, is I think that may be what's going on. And there's some kind of a security issue. But we'll have to dig into this. And kind of figure out what, you know, first of all, is that the, really the reason the driver went away? Two, can we bring it back? And if not, uh, you know, what, what can we do? So I'm going to pose this question to our listeners. Userfriendly.show, jump on the website. Have you had hardware that stopped working due to an operating system upgrade or something like that that's ended up producing e-waste or caused problems or caused you expense having to upgrade it if you can? Because in a lot of cases, you can't get the same component for the new operating system it's just gone and you know i want to hear about this because this is actually something that's a real issue and something that i think we should definitely explore further all right up next we have an interview with joan woodward from travelers institute they are going to be doing some more cybersecurity presentations cyber insurance and all of that to keep businesses safe and they have one coming up in the bellevue area so with no further ado joan woodward Hey everybody, this is Bill Snodgrass. Join user-friendly in supporting the people of the Ukraine with President Zelensky's United24 campaign. Help is needed with healthcare, demining, and many, many other things. You decide where your support goes. Go to userfriendly.show and click the Ukrainian flag at the bottom of the homepage for more information. Joining us now, Joan Woodward of Travelers. Joan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. Great to be back. So before we dive into this, for any of our listeners who may not have met you before, can you give me a quick introduction and talk about the Travelers Institute? Sure. I'm Joan Woodward, Executive Vice President of Public Policy at Travelers and President of the Travelers Institute. And that was created in 2009 when I was approached by our current CEO, Alan Schnitzer, and really tasked to create a public policy division for the company. So we wanted to be involved in dialogue on really important issues of importance to the country. And our goal is to be uh, leading thoughtful conversations about challenges we face today and into the future. Uh, In the last 15 years, we've held about 750 events, if you can believe that, bringing together policy experts, government officials, agent brokers, researchers, university professors really to talk about the best resources um, and today's hottest issues uh, from distracted driving to cybersecurity or hurricane preparedness, auto safety, autonomous vehicles, you name it, we've done it. 
Yeah, I know. It, it, you've been with us a couple of times on the show before, and some of the stuff that you were just talking about, um, I know that we've talked about public policy initiatives such as distracted driving and cybersecurity, which we're going to talk a little bit more about today. And after both of those shows, we got a number of questions from listeners, and uh, I wanted to touch base on a few before we get started. So let's go ahead and just dive right in. And first question that we had come in was uh, my daughter or son or daughter would be relevant here, just got their driver's license. They're glued to their phone. What are some ways I can minimize distracted driving when they are using the car, even if I'm not in there with them? Well, first of all, I get it. I'm a mom of four grown uh, children, now adults. I completely understand the concern and still feel anxiety to this day. Uh, We can't be with our kids all the time, which is uh, important that we continue to educate them on facts so they can make smart and informed decisions behind the wheel. So the National Safety Council found that more than 46,000 people were killed in preventable car crashes in 2022. And um, the National Distracted Driving Coalition reports that crash risk is two to six times greater when drivers are manipulating a phone when compared with ones who are not distracted. And the risk is even higher for drivers under 30 years old. So Travelers released a 2023 Distracted Driving Risk Index survey results in April. And we found that 70% of drivers feel that distracted driving is more of a problem now than it was in the past few years. So your concerns are valid and definitely real. Um, Making sure that teens know the risk associated with driving distracted are important. I would encourage a few simple things. Have them put their phone on Do Not Disturb, a life-saving setting on all smartphones to keep those distractions down while they're driving. Also, enroll your family in a telematics program. That way, you can keep track of your own driving habits, and you can also keep an eye on your kids' behavior, too. So that's some practical advice. And of course, you can also speak up. So if there's a driver that you're a passenger in the car, whether you're in a ride share, you deserve a distraction-free drive. You're paying for it. So speak up to that uh, ride share driver and tell them to put their phone down as well. You know, in talking tech, it's a perfect segue into our next question. What are some of the technologies that can help with distracted driving? You mentioned telematics. What is that? So, yeah, telematics are definitely on the rise across the country. For those who don't know, uh, it's a technology that collects data from the connected vehicles, IoT devices, and smartphones and evaluates certain behaviors on the road, such as speeding, hard braking, and distraction, among others. And users can uh, download the app and get a real-time feedback on their performance and change their poor driving habits to improve their score. Travelers has its own uh, telematics program. We call it IntelliDrive, where customers can sign up and personalize their auto insurance premium, as well as offering discounts, rewards, and other incentives for that safe driving. So uh, simply by enrolling, new customers can save up to 12% on their car insurance policy uh, for the first term. And a renewal, if you have safe driving habits, can lead to up to a 30% uh, additional savings. So uh, telematics is really a great way for consumers to f- get feedback in real time and correct their behaviors you know, behind the wheel. All right, now I'm going to change topics on you a little bit, and let's talk a little cybersecurity. Now, you were on earlier in the year with this, and one big question that's come in, when should companies have cybersecurity insurance? Yeah, this is a really good one. Companies of all sizes should now have cyber insurance. Small businesses may assume that cyber criminals are only targeting the big firms, 
But that's simply not true. Many hackers see significant opportunity in small organizations or smaller firms because they may not have the resources and controls in place to protect themselves. So cyber insurance can cover expenses for things like remediation, notification, card payment penalties, crisis management, public relations, and more. It really can also provide financial protection in the event that a lawsuit is filed against your company by a consumer whose data was lost or shared. So um, also getting cyber insurance, uh, those companies can recommend resources for how you can implement a cybersecurity uh, plan to become uh, cyber hygiene and cyber safe, we call it. So uh, also these insurance policies also provide the pre-breach services, that is to help businesses um, avoid that cyber institute incident. So that's what you really want to do is avoid being hacked by all uh, means. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, keeping them out is always the best way to go. So tell me some more about the cybersecurity education tour. I hear the Travelers Institute is traveling across the country this fall. Yep, we've been hitting the pavement so far this season, bringing free cybersecurity symposiums to agents, brokers, business leaders uh, of all sizes across the country. And so we started in Atlanta on September 12th, San Ramon, California, September 19th, mid-October, we're in Worcester, Massachusetts. October 17th, Kansas City, Missouri, October 20th. So uh, in November, you can catch us in your neck of the woods, Bill, in Bellevue, Washington. We'll be there on November 7th and wrap up our fall programming in Dallas, uh, Dallas on November 28th. And these events are really part of our national Cyber Prevair, Prevent, Mist- Mist- Mitigate, and Restore series, which we started in 2016. And we partner with government agencies to share insights into the current threat landscape and really help organizations of all sizes prepare for, respond to uh, the potential inevitable cyber event. So check us out, uh, travelersinstitute.org for those dates, those cities, all free and open to the public over a nice luncheon too. Now that sounds amazing. And I'm going to just shout this out here for Bellevue. We've just uh, added our show to KKOL in Seattle. So our listeners there are going to be picking this up uh, right in time for that. All right. um, Travelers just released new survey results ahead of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Can you go ahead and tell me a little bit more about them? Sure. We just released now our risk index, which provides an annual snapshot of risk viewpoints from companies of various sizes, as well as industries across the map. Think transportation, healthcare, construction, banking, finance, et cetera. And what we really found is that in an ever-changing world, cybersecurity continues to be a top concern among business leaders from the ninth straight year, ranking third behind medical cost inflation and broad economic uncertainty. So of those taking the survey, 58% said they worry some or a great deal about cybersecurity. And while some had expressed confidence their company had implemented best cyber practices, at least 25% of businesses had not taken those essential steps to protect their business, such as installing firewalls or virus protections. So an even bigger percentage said they don't use endpoint detection and response, or EDR, which is 64%, or even use multi-factor authentication, uh, which is really critical for remote access. So um, the percentage of survey respondents from large companies who said they've experienced a phishing scam nearly doubled in the past year from 14 to 27%. So these uh, stats are concerning. Uh, It's an ongoing issue. We feel it's important to be out there in the community, uh, raising awareness to business leaders to get the resources they need really to protect themselves and their customers from a potential cyber attack. 
So earlier, uh, we were just chatting that you're going to be in Bellevue uh, coming up here. Do you have any data specifically on the local region there? Anything that you could share that would entice more folks to come out and attend the live event and learn about protecting their business? Yes, yes, for sure. We recently uh, released a new survey uh, to the cities we're visiting to gauge their cyber hygiene. And we found that the Seattle-Tacoma area was relatively cyber savvy. Of course, you have a lot of tech in the area, but there's always room for improvement. Here are some highlights. So 70% of businesses and organizations said that having proper cyber prevention tools in place is critical for the well-being of their company. But only 43% reported that they have cyber insurance. What is interesting that nearly 60% in that area said that having proper cyber insurance in place is critical to the company's well-being. So 27%, this is shocking, reported they've they've already experienced a data breach or a cyber event. That's 27% of all the businesses we surveyed in that area. Um, Only 52% used multi-factor authentication. So that number should be a lot higher. That's low-hanging fruit. It's easy to do. Uh, That is where you have an extra step to identify your identity. And according to Microsoft, having MFA or multi-factor authentication would prevent 99.9% of attacks on your account. So this is something we certainly urge um, uh, companies to get is the MFA. And we'll definitely look forward to visiting Bellevue on November 7th. Again, you could register. It's free and open to the public. It's about a two-hour session, and you're going to get very smart on uh, what you need to know about cyber on that day. I'm going to just confirm one thing you just said on those percentages. That would mean that more than one in four businesses have been hacked, basically. Um, according to ours, it was 27% they experienced yeah. a data breach or a cyber event. So that's a that's lot. That's what I thought you said. That's, that's yeah, lot. that's, I w- I'm surprised. I didn't know it was that bad. Um, I, I know it's out there, of course, but that's uh, that's a little shocking. All right, where can people get more information? Sure. Go over to travelersinstitute.org to register for our events, our webinars. We do a Wednesday webinar twice a month. Gain access to all of our free resources. We just published a five-step cybersecurity uh, interactive tool to help you foster cyber knowledge, which are available free on our website. We're also launching a podcast, just like you, Bill, in the coming weeks. So keep an eye out for our new podcast, Travelers Institute Risk and Resilience. We're, we're going to cover a number of public policy and important topics. So you can stream it anywhere on any uh, any place you get your podcast. All right. That sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to that. And I didn't know about that until right now. So that's cool. So we'll check it out. Well, as always, thank you for joining us. This is always good information. And for any business out there that doesn't have protection on this, get it. I mean, that's the only thing I can say here. And go to the Institute. These are great places to get the information that you need to make sure that your most valuable asset, your data, stays secure. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Got a great interview coming up here for you, Tony Pan with Modern Hydrogen. He's going to be talking all about an exciting new way to produce clean hydrogen and some things that I wouldn't have thought of doing. So let's jump to the interview. Mosaic Arts Loft. 
Come discover the mosaic difference with art lessons in drawing, painting, and clay pottery making. Contact us for a free studio tour and a buy four, get one free at mosaicsartsloft.com. We don't just make art, we build artists. Joining us now, Tony Pan, who is involved in making hydrogen fuel a reality. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've got some questions we want to go through here first, but just to kind of put this in a little bit of context, and I don't mean to throw this at you out of left field, but can you give us just a real quick summary of what it is that you are doing, and then we'll dive in. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Tony. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Modern Hydrogen. What we do is produce clean hydrogen, and we do that by actually decarbonizing natural gas into clean hydrogen at the points of use. So okay, that's yeah. Oh, go, like, Tony, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, you. I think basically, because uh, you, you told me earlier, uh, right before we officially started recording, right, like your your audience likes a bit technical details. Very simply, Absolutely. right, like natural gas. Folks know that, you know, I think they're, everybody's aware of it because most people use it in their homes. It's a fuel. It's a fossil fuel, right? One of the biggest energy sources on the planet. I like to tell folks, if you don't know the numbers, just think in the United States, we use as much natural gas as coal plus nuclear plus hydroelectricity plus solar plus wind. All of that together combined is approximately the same size as natural gas. So it's a wow. huge energy source. And uh, but the issue, of course, is when you burn it to emit CO two. It turns out when you look at natural gas, like natural gas, like chemists will call it CH four. It's one carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms, so it's like eighty percent hydrogen. The only issue you have with it is like the remainder twenty percent. That's the carbon. That if you burn it, it produces CO two. So we've developed a new technology to basically crack that molecule into its constituent atoms, so to break it apart into carbon and hydrogen. And then you just use the hydrogen as fuel and use the carbon actually as materials. You don't burn it. So that if you do that, no CO2 is ever created. Well, that's so good. Complete, completely <laughs> clean energy then. All right. So, uh, all right. So let's go ahead and dive into the details on it. How does on-site natural gas decarbonization process work? You talked about breaking down the molecules and its integration with asphalt carbon sequestering technology. See, I can see that, say that word. Um, Tell us a little bit more. Let's dive into some more of the details on that. Yeah, so the technology itself, like the nerds would call this methane pyrolysis. Pyrolysis. It means heating something up to very high temperatures in the absence of oxygen. So it turns out when you take like a hydrocarbon atom, uh, a hydrocarbon molecule like, like natural gas, like methane, if you heat it up in a place without oxygen, it cannot burn. And so it just break apart into into its constituents' uh, atoms. And so that's really how our reactor works. At the end of the day, this is sort of a chemical reactor technology that converts one chemical into other chemicals. So we're converting natural gas into clean hydrogen and solid carbon. It literally looks like powder coming out. Uh, if you've looked at chimney suits, the carbon comes out in that kind of texture. And so the cool thing is that Traditionally, right, you would just burn the natural gas and burn everything and you release energy from it and you have the CO2 footprint. But actually, the carbon is far more valuable as a material instead of as an energy source. If you're just burning it, it's almost like you're burning, burning hydrogen and coal. 
But if you actually use the carbon that comes out of a reactor as a material, you can do very useful things with it. For example, our company has developed a formulation of a carbon where we can put the carbon into asphalt. You know how roads are black? It's because roads have very high carbon content. And so we can now put our clean carbon that has been pulled out of natural gas uh, and achieve decarbonization and then use it to essentially help people build roads. So you're actually locking the carpet into roads where it will be stable for thousands of years instead of releasing the carbon as CO2 into the atmosphere. So that's what we mean by carbon sequestration. You're actually using the carbon now from all these fossil fuels as a material uh, that you already need to build the human civilization instead of letting it go into the atmosphere. So it seems like this is something that would really contribute to sustainable infrastructure. Yeah, uh, it, it's funny, right? I think, uh, I don't know whether, I think there's some optimists and pessimists in like the climate change fight. Uh, I'm too engineering focused to be either, I'm a realist. And I think you need, you need to remind folks, right? Like the clean energy transition is not so easy because yeah, we now have cheap solar and wind and that is an incredible contribution. But that doesn't mean we can stop worrying about climate change because electricity is only one third of total emissions. We're emitting CO2 in pretty much everything we do as human beings. And that involves things like agriculture, the food we we'll eat, but also our built environment. So we, we use a lot of fuel and emit CO2 in making like the concrete and steel in our buildings. We make it, uh, plastic is made from fossil fuels. And definitely even like the asphalt in our ground is extremely carbon intensive to make. And so when we can actually make our carbon clean, right, like our whole process does not emit CO2, we can actually use this carbon material to uh, offset and enhance the properties of materials in our built environment and reduce their CO2 footprints. So literally like the roads made with our asphalt are cleaner. They have less CO2 footprint. And simultaneously, because we're providing clean hydrogen, we're also decarbonizing the energy. So we're actually decarbonizing things on both ends with our technology. So let's let's talk politics on this for a little bit. You mentioned the climate change fight and all that kind of stuff. How do current policy frameworks support or hinder the advancement and adoption of hydrogen for heat and heavy industry and fleet fueling? And if you could also talk about what policy changes, if any, you'd like to see. So. I want to give a big shout out to policymakers, right? Like last two years have been very big for clean energy, especially for hydrogen. At a federal level, there's been like a smaller bill and a massive bill. The smaller bill is an infrastructure bill that started uh, supporting things called hydrogen hubs, government spending billions of dollars to set up centers of hydrogen production and demand. Uh, and that will be very useful very useful to support hydrogen being used in heavy industry. There's the big talk about hydrogen now is the observation that essentially there's a lot of processes in our economy that cannot be decarbonized with an electron. And that is particularly prevalent in heavy industry. Think manufacturing of goods, materials. Again, think molten vats of silicon, steel, copper, you name it. That, that is very hard to decarbonize with electricity and you need hydrogen as a fuel. So the government supporting that, but the even bigger law that passed was the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, folks widely expect this to be effectively like a trillion dollar bill over a decade. And within it, it has a direct clean hydrogen uh, 
tax credits called the 45V law. This is probably the most important and generous credit within the Inflation Reduction Act, which is essentially a climate bill. And this basically, the cleaner you get the hydrogen, the more the government helps, uh, helps you with a tax credit. So that's a beautiful law. Now, what would still additionally be helpful going forward is if you think about what's happening, the government has supported the supply of hydrogen. It's incentivized folks like modern hydrogen to provide clean hydrogen. What would be useful going forward is to also su uh, support folks to take the hydrogen. So right now, yeah, like if you have a tax credit, you basically make clean hydrogen cheaper. That, of course, will help people adopt it. But ultimately, hydrogen is about decarbonization. And right now in several industries, there's no law that mandates folks to decarbonize. And so that is what would be useful going forward, right? And that's happened in certain things, but not in things like heavy industry yet, at least not at the federal level. I will say that several forward-looking states like California, they've already started setting standards like clean vehicle standards, not just for passenger vehicles, but also for things like trucks and buses. And so that will drive adoption of clean hydrogen from the demand side. So those things are helpful as well. No, I mean, this sounds great to have, have an alternative. So let's talk a positive side of this. In an ideal world, what do you think is the potential environmental impact of, of your technology and how big could this get? Oh, this is as big as it gets. It's like the next solar and wind, right? And I'm talking about turning natural gas into hydrogen generally. But I mean, so the numbers are you can produce enough hydrogen and decarbonize enough natural gas that potentially you can reduce 10 gigatons of CO2 per year. That's 20% of all man-made emissions. So this is roughly like 10 times larger than, let's say, decarbonizing planes. And it's, it sounds awesome, but it's also a reflection of just how much natural gas we use in human civilization and how much of a problem that is in terms of emissions. So uh, that, that's sort of the promise, right? Like ultimately this basically turns natural, uh, natural gas clean and the sheer size of how much emissions reductions as a reflection of just how big the sector is. But even better, there's something even cooler. So like reducing emissions by 10 times the level of the aviation sector is crazy, right? But you can actually go even further. And you do that by pairing that with biogas. And we actually have a project doing just that in, in Washington state. And so here's the thing. So we the uh, agriculture can produce a lot of biogas. Think basically uh, cows or farming, based, uh, right? Like you, you grow the grass, the grass is sucking CO2 from the atmosphere and producing food from it. And then as the cows eat the grass or as you, you know, harvest the corn, you have some leftover stuff and you can produce biofuels with it, like biogas. So that biofuel, like biogas, is already carbon neutral. But then if you put the biogas into our technology, we'll sp split the biogas still into carbon and hydrogen. And then you put part of the carbon in the ground. So you've taken a fuel that is already carbon neutral, and then you pull the carbon out of that and puts it into the ground. So essentially the whole process, long story short, uh, sorry for the long preamble. I'm a nerd. I get excited, but the whole No worries. You fit right in here. here. Don't even worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> right? The whole sum of what you're doing here is effectively you've pulled CO2 out of the atmosphere and put the carbon into the ground. You've essentially run the reverse of climate change. You are repairing the atmosphere. This is what is called in our sector negative emissions. 
And this is one of the things I'm most excited about long term, the potential of this technology, not to just reduce all the emissions that we're make, we're doing every year, but actually start repairing it uh, by uh, actually, again, right, like reversing the centuries of emissions we've put up into the air and start locking that carbon back into the ground. All right. So you mentioned biofuels in Washington state. So I'm going to ask you this question. Why are you based in the Pacific Northwest? And what collaborations, if any, uh, partnerships and so on, do you have with Portland and Seattle? So we spun out of a deep tech incubator that was uh, supported by Bill Gates in Seattle. So that's actually how we ended up in Seattle. Uh, And yeah, and to this day, Bill Gates is one of our biggest investors. Uh, So so that's that's the connection. Otherwise, it's sort of random. Uh, In fact, I like a lot of our talent. Since this this is like Seattle's sort of a software town, uh, we're fortunate that like you know we can get some engineers from Boeing, but otherwise it's a software town. Most of the talents we have to pull are like hardware, uh, chemical people, mechanical people, electrical engineering people, and we have to relocate a bunch of people to Seattle. But you know, this is what it is. Our company's in the greater Seattle area now. Uh, now, in terms of the Pacific Northwest, right? I told you about the biogas process project we're actually doing with the Tulalip tribe which is a Native American tribe uh, out here in like the outskirts of Seattle. And that we're really excited about that because that, again, repairs the atmosphere. But we're also uh, working in Portland as well. We have a partnership with Northwest Natural, which is a big utility in Oregon. And we're working with them to decarbonize uh, natural gas and help them produce clean hydrogen. In addition, uh, we have a project going on in Florida. Uh, that one is with Next Era, which is the largest they're probably the most premium utility in the United States. They're the largest publicly traded utility in the U.S. And they're probably the biggest, one of the biggest players in clean hydrogen. So we're very excited that they chose us to work with them on this version of technology. In addition, we actually have partnerships in, uh, in Northeast United States as well with National Grid. They're an investor of ours. They're also one of the biggest utilities in the world. They're big in the U.S., in New York and Massachusetts. We also have a collaboration now internationally in Japan uh, with a big company called Mura there. They, they're actually responsible for like 2.5% of all of Japan's emissions. And they would like our help to decarbonize their, uh, their industrial boilers. Oh, my goodness. I just, you know, it gets me thinking about all this stuff. And we've talked about heavy industry and building roads and things. What kind of other technology do you think will eventually benefit from hydrogen fuel? Are we going to see some consumer facing stuff here like hydrogen cars? Am I going to be able to buy a hydrogen jetpack as a, for example, where do you see this going on that end? So folks are under folks in the climate change game often called hydrogen, the Swiss army knife of decarbonization because it can go to so many places. Essentially think that if you can electrify your energy, you should just go ahead and electrify it with solar and wind. That's probably the most sensible thing to do. Don't please don't use hydrogen, actually. But it just turns out there's so many other applications where you probably need to use some kind of fuel, not the electron directly. And hydrogen would be that holy grail fuel that doesn't have a carbon atom in it. So when you burn it, it doesn't emit CO2. And so it can go many different places. But I will say to your comment, right? Like in my personal opinion, hydrogen will mostly be for industrial and commercial. And less like the like less used for like you and me in our in our direct lives. Uh, with oh, with love love of for love of Japanese cars and Toyota, I actually think uh, like if you think about like 
transport on roads. You could, right, like Toyota has their Toro Terminal, right? They have a hydrogen passenger vehicle. But if you do the comparison with electric vehicle, hydrogen has a much bigger competitive advantage when you think about very long distance transport, things like trucks and buses. I actually think electric vehicles uh, will win in passenger cars. They'll be like the predominant solution instead of hydrogen. But so that's just one sector, right? You'll, you'll have to use hydrogen in things like making materials like ammonia and even plastic if you want to decarbonize it. Uh, and fun fact, I love nerding out on this to just kind of scare people about how hard climate change is going to be. Today, we make ammonia from hydrogen derived from, uh, from fossil fuels that has a huge CO2 footprint. And uh, ammonia is used to make fertilizer. So it makes our food. So essentially, we have nitrogen in our bodies coming directly from ammonia, and half of that is synthetic. So half of the nitrogen in your body essentially came from a fossil fuel process. So we stop using fossil fuels today. Half of humanity has to die. Like literally, you, you can't make enough food. That'd be a uh, bummer. And yeah. So you have to. So, but you can replace that <laughs> with a clean hydrogen process to create the ammonia. So we're gonna need clean hydrogen for that. You can. You'll also use hydrogen in things like industrial processes, like industrial heat. Even, like if you think about even making a solar panel or a wind turbine, there's so many processes in there where you need a thousand Celsius heat just to make the material. You won't. You can't do that with solar and wind. You have to burn some kind of fuel. So hydrogen is that fuel. Uh, you also okay, need so hydrogen to make things probably like steel. And that actually, it's interesting. Like you need to basically uh, when you get iron, raw iron, it's not iron. It's like it's like iron ore, right? It has it's already oxidized. You need to use the hydrogen to pull the oxygen out of it to produce the pure iron that can be used to make steel. Uh, and uh, that process, you probably have to use... Today, people use actually carbon to, uh, to suck the oxygen out and produce CO2. So to decarbonize that, you probably have to search your hydrogen. There's no alternative. And then uh, airlines, probably like batteries are way too heavy. So airlines, like maybe short haul flights, like, like 12 seaters, 20 person seaters can go electric, electric batteries for like short distances, but for long, like intercontinental flight, it's either hydrogen or biofuels. You have no alternative. And then last but not least, right? Like renewables are intermittent. So there's this issue of what happens when you just have like a week long outage. That's too long for batteries to cover economically. So you probably need some peaking plants to provide the electricity. And basically the discussion right now is, okay, we're probably going to have like turbines running off hydrogen to produce that peaking part as well to complement renewables. So as you can hear, like it's kind of needed everywhere. It's not the solution for everything. I want to make that clear. There's many things uh, that you should directly use like solar and wind electricity for, but the economy is so huge that there's all these other applications where you probably have to use hydrogen. Yeah, so it sounds like a mixed thing. So you basically would use your technology to produce clean hydrogen to manufacture the electric car and then electricity to run it. So it is definitely part of the process. It's just, you know, the first part. And actually emissions for manufacturing stuff like that is something we've talked about too. And it is a big part of it because there's a huge carbon footprint for an electric car. Not when you run it, but when you make it, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? That's a dirty secret. Like all, all, our, all the materials and batteries are coming from China where 60% yeah. uh, of electricity grid is running on coal. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, so you're dealing with it. And I, I read a statistic somewhere that you really don't have an environmental benefit from an electric car 
until you hit about 30,000 miles, give or take on it. And then that's when it starts to kind of tip. But that's yeah, just that's the- right. uh, you should, It's still good, right? Because most cars are driven over 30,000 miles. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right, like, but it's just I, one I, yeah. of those things that, you know, and then you have to consider the electricity that you're charging it from. You have a process yeah. here that would make that clean too. And, yeah. you know, so you're not like you say burning coal or something else that pollutes to charge it. So I, I can see where this works in and just, just so many different ways. And I think that's amazing. One of the reasons I asked about the vehicles is because one of our markets down in Reno, Nevada, they're switching mm-hmm. over to hydrogen fuel cell for the buses. Yeah. So it seemed like that right. was an interesting comparison. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so one of the biggest issues they have with hydrogen buses is actually building the refueling stations. So the, the, the one big problem the, with hydrogen is it's a very hard fuel to move around. It's very expensive. This is the lightest element in the universe. It's like the smallest atom. So it's very hard. It's not very economical to move around because it's so, it's like the opposite of dense. It's very diffuse. If you have like the same tank, like think same volume of a box holding like ga- normal gasoline, right? Like we use today versus like the same tank to hold hydrogen. That tank of hydrogen would only have 10% of energy as gasoline because it's not very dense. And so that's a very big problem. And it's a very big problem, right? How do you get hydrogen to the refueling station? If moving around is so hard and expensive. Well, with our solution, since frankly, not, there's 3 million miles of natural gas pipelines in the United States. Natural gas is everywhere. Essentially, we just say anywhere you have natural gas pipeline, which is most, most like almost, almost every zip code in the United States, you just turn that natural gas into clean hydrogen uh, with our box. And immediately there, you have a hydrogen refueling station on site. And then you no longer need to build any infrastructure. Uh, to move the hydrogen around. That's a, and that's actually the most excited part I am about our business. Because ultimately, uh, I mean, like this makes me also kind of sad because the, the solution to move hydrogen around would be building hydrogen pipes. But it took us a century to build natural gas pipes. It took us a century to build an electricity grid. We will wait like two lifetimes before we have the same level of hydrogen infrastructure that uh, that will be needed to make hydrogen everywhere for all these applications. We can't wait that long. You already see like the temperature this year because our solution basically skips the need for new infrastructure. We can start reducing CO2 emissions a lot quicker. And it's that idea of urgency that you can start again, skip the need to build new infrastructure, use what we have and start decarbonizing now. That's probably how what I'm most excited about uh, in terms of our business. Uh, yeah, like it, the scale, yeah, sure. The scale is large, but I think time really matters in the climate change fight now. And so I, I think the time aspect, uh, uh, may be like the most important piece here. Well, what you're saying is it completely eliminates the need to transport it at all, which is, which is amazing. You can use something that's already there. So, all right, we're hitting the end of our time, Tony, how did, would somebody go and find more information about your project? Can you give us your websites and social media and stuff? Yeah, so we're on our website, modernhydrogen.com. Uh, and uh, we are on, uh, I think, social media, mostly on LinkedIn. But especially if uh, we're, uh, we're very excited this year to, uh, like, we've, we've been turning down orders for hydrogen because we can already not know, we can't even meet the demand for hydrogen. We've turned down several orders this year. But we're uh, really trying to uh, kick off our carbon business. We've already signed our first like recurring carbon offtake agreements. We've like sequestered like carbon and temp projects. 
in like four states and also Canada, but we want to do more. So if your city or county wants carbon sequestered in your roads, please reach out to us. We'll send you a sample. You can email us at carbon at modernhydrogen.com directly. Tony, thank you so much. And to our listeners, please send in your questions. And Tony, what I'd love to do is have you back a little later on to answer, because we're going to get a ton of questions about this today. It's just been some great information. And listen to you and your company, the best of luck going forward. No, thank you. Uh, we, we definitely need it, right? We're so, and the whole sector needs it. We're, uh, we're just one solution. Uh, like this, this, this climate change thing is going to need like a hundred solutions. Absolutely. Absolutely. But glad you're, glad you're out there. Alrighty, thank you. This is User Friendly 2.0. Until next week, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User Friendly Media Group Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User Friendly Media Group Inc. or this station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting and technology provided by WeAreTechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.